Are we live? Hello. Can you hear me? Why is my mic so high? Hello. There we go. That's better. My little brother-in-law was using my um, desk to edit some some of my videos. Actually, I'm putting him to work. Two bucks per job. It's not child labor. It's family, bro. Come on in. Let me know if you can hear me in the comments. Let me know if you can see me. Okay. Today's episode is going to be so fun because we have one of the leading AI experts in the Tesla community joining us today. Do you know who he is? Can you tell by the thumbnail by any chance? I wonder. But before we introduce our special guest, we're going to introduce our two panelists for today. We're going to have Ishan joining us. Hello, Ishan. And Hans in a car, but soon to be at his house. So there's some novelty fact, uh, factor for y'all. And then our very special guest, the one, the only, James Dalma. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Appreciate you Happy having yeah, I appreciate you uh, coming on with us. All right. So uh, for those that are not familiar with these uh, live streams, these are going to be very conversational. These are just uh, you know meant to be uh, places where we can sit down and really explore topics in depth. Uh, and James being an AI expert and really understanding the Tesla story, we're, we're going to spend quite a bit of time around those topics, obviously. But we don't know where the conversation is going to go. So sit with us and, and we'll see where it takes us. So um, I guess to get started, James, uh, thank you so much for for uh, sharing the, uh, look, Hans already dropped out. I love it. <laughs> Great start. Um, the uh, One of the things that I saw from, from you yesterday, which I really appreciate, which you were sharing the um, conversation we had on this channel a couple of days ago with Bradford and Scott and John, Dr. Know-it-all about the bot. Um, so I really appreciate you sharing that. But I'm curious, like, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share from that conversation? Was there anything that stood out from a topic perspective that you'd like to share just to kind of uh, maybe get some thoughts uh, to get the conversation started? Let me go I was that. really happy with the quality of that conversation. I, I, I actually don't talk to lay audience. I mean, outside of my family, I don't talk to lay audiences about this stuff very often. And um, everything you see in newspapers is so cringeworthy and so completely racked with misconceptions and whatnot that, you, you know, I end up being a little apprehensive about trying to tackle this. So being able to come up with the right way to explain something that on the one hand isn't going to mislead someone who's not familiar with the topic, but on the other hand, isn't going to get me a lot of hate mail from people in the, in the field, <laughs> right. About the details that you got wrong and, and seeing the four of you, uh, cause I felt like every, you know, you clearly got it right. The, the sense of what's going on that it, a lot of the conversation surrounding the, this topic loses important nuance, like, when you talk about whether something's going to happen, like time frame is so important. And you guys clearly understand, you know, it's not, uh, you know, the, neither Tesla bot nor AGI nor any of the other things are like a binary thing where like it's there one day and the day before it, it wasn't there. This is, you know, it's an arc. And what things look like in two years, 10 years, 20 years is 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 different. And then and the this is the social dynamics of the introduction of these incredibly disruptive technologies is another, uh, you know, topic that's, it, we, you read about it in the lay press and it's all, it's hyperbolic and gloom and doom and, and it, you know, it's going to be manageable. And I thought that the panel that you had, had a very realistic and expectations for, for how it ought to go. So yeah, I was, that's why I thought it was such a great discussion. I mean, there's four people, four really different perspectives. You had a good, you know, back and forth on the topics and yet it was all basically on the mark. I thought and it was good. Awesome. And I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, one of the 
reasons I even wanted to have the discussion was uh, so Bradford hosted a Twitter space on Saturday about, you know, the, the implication of the bots to jobs in, in the long term, short term, so on and so forth. And and like you, like like I. I am the farthest person away from an AI expert. Like I am about as lay as lay gets with with that topic. Uh, let me go this way. That's a little bit better. Um, and but I, the the one thing that I that I is missing right now is that it, it does appear like we're moving towards a, a time in technology and in culture almost that that this sort of thing is really starting to gain traction. And Tesla being one of those first companies that's starting to to drive that technology to the public, right? Like neural nets and uh, AI that's uh, narrow, that's very useful, like FSD. But then it's going to get more and more complex over time. But I see to your point, no, no conversations that are geared to the layman, like myself, that actually describe what is actually happening. <laughs> you know, like, it's it's missing from the conversation big time. And I almost go back to the age of the internet, like back when it first came out, I don't know, like 80s or 90s, where there was this, uh, I remember going on YouTube recently and watching all these interviews, what is the internet? You know, it's just, uh, it's nobody had any idea what was going on. And then 10 years later, the world is com a completely different place. Um, is is that how you think about it from your perspective? I'm curious to kind of hear your thought process as far as like 10 years from now. How are you seeing this sort of thing developing? Do you think there needs to be better conversations in the public discourse to try and bring more awareness to the pros and cons of this thing? I'm kind of curious to get your take on that a little bit. I think I think the public actually does pretty well with these. I, the, we're, the, we're not technological disruptions are not a new thing. Like we've, the last, you know, century, 200 years has been just completely racked with a life for everybody has changed radically in the last 100, 150 years. And we absorbed it. And so we've got all these historical precedents we can look back at to see, to get an idea of how society adapts to these changes. And my sense is that, that, that people do okay, but the uh, the narrative, it, like if you're going to fear monger, if it if your focus on change is what's the worst thing that can happen, and let's spend a lot of time talking about that, and it, you can do it constructively, like let's spend a lot of time talking about it so that we can avoid it, like you can have the best of intentions, and you still end up kind of missing, you know, the forest for the trees, right? You end up focusing on 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 some narrow aspect of the problem. Like the, you, when you were talking about people, just jobs getting displaced, like a natural thing to do is you think about, well, like a humanoid robot, all of a sudden it can do manual labor jobs. So you imagine somebody with a man and, and your common sense keeps you focused on like the, that first person who's affected, you know, because something they used to do, uh, is now being partially automated. So, you know, this the simplest approximation to that to like what the consequence of that is, well, that person will just there'll be fewer the fewer of those people working, but you know, a great example of a disruptive technology is the spreadsheet. When the mm. spreadsheet got invented, uh, you know, prior to the spreadsheet, you used, you know, if if you worked with numbers, you had an adding machine and you had pencil and paper, right? And a spreadsheet completely it made people who did those things fantastically more productive. But but what happened is like the world did not get fewer accountants. Like people we with add, the number of, I mean, the adding machines went away, but the spreadsheet showed up. And and the, the response of, you know, industry to this was to, was to raise their expectations. 
You know, it didn't, now that with spreadsheets, now what we expect somebody who works with numbers to produce has gone up dramatically. But then the, the value of the product that they produce also expands really dramatically. Mm-hmm. And then the, the demand for that product goes up because the economic utility of it has just, has expanded a lot. So you have to kind of step back from the immediate local effect of just thinking of just that job in just that context, because the rest of the system responds too. the price point for that service changes and the demand for that service frequently goes up. It's the, the invention of the loom, you know, it's, uh, you go back a hundred years, 150 years, people had a suit, people had eight, one set of clothes that they, that they wore. You might have two so that you could have one washed and one didn't. You had one pair of pants. You had maybe two or three shirts, right? Because clothes were really expensive. It was a major outlay, which is why, you know, when people died, you didn't bury them in nice clothes. Somebody inherited their clothes. I mean, it's almost inconceivable now because the invention of the loom, it, it, it took clothing and cloth from something that was, you know, an an expensive thing that you had to plan your life around the scarcity of, and it made it completely ubiquitous. Like a t-shirt they did, the manufacturing cost of a t-shirt is less than 25 cents. So they're like free. <laughs> and the people did not respond by like the number of, sure, the people operating looms might have gone down slightly, but the demand for clothing exploded. Now we all have, you know, closets full of clothing and, and uh, you know, the homeless people in San Francisco can go down to Goodwill and get better clothes than you could buy years ago because, you know, there's so many yeah. clothes, we just give it away. So more people are in that business now than were in that business back then. The whole economy has gotten better. Like there's, there's more money, there's more free time. And then uh, what was it? Scott came up, he, he mentioned, you know, you go back 100, 150 years, 98% of people were farmers, okay? Well, okay, what are those 98% of people doing now? And the answer is everything, <laughs> right? Everything. And if yeah. you'd gone back and you'd, and you'd talk to people who were working on the farm at the time and saying, oh yeah, we're gonna get a tractor and you and the horse, you're gonna be out of a job, okay? And if that guy thinks, oh, what am I going to do? I'm going to get a PhD in machine learning or, you know, (laughs) the the people who are working on the farm, that's the life that they know. That's not what they immediately imagine. Right. But opportunities open up and that, you know, there's transition takes time. People are always worried about these and they always work out great for us in the long run. And so even though I can't paint you a picture of exactly what it means to any individual person, you know, the historical precedent is that technological disruptions are really good for people, you know, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. Gotcha. Ishan, I saw you went off mute, go for it. Right, so uh, this is actually a great segue for uh, this question that I had. And uh, so uh, as the Tesla bot, you know, uh, starts getting created, has some very basic skills, potentially has been used in the gigafactories, et cetera. Do you see an opportunity or an ecosystem of uh, skills being developed by third parties? For example, uh, would you and I get together, create a company that sort of creates this couple of specialized skills on top of the Tesla bot and then deploys it in a specific scenario. For example, let's say elder care or, um, I don't know, uh, security or some other thing. And, you know, maybe uh, Farzad and Hans get together, create a company uh, and, you know, uh, create a different set of skills 
uh, and deployed mm-hmm. on top of, uh, you know, learning a little bit from what's happened with Alexa, uh, learning a little bit from, you know, all the entire app ecosystem that we have on our phones now, hopefully on Tesla's as well at some point. So do you see this, uh, like the world moving towards uh, this sort of an economy uh, at some point? I think uh, a lot of that, there will be lots of opportunities in uh, programming robots, handling robots, mm-hmm. managing robots. I mean, one one job that I think will is going to show up really quickly is, uh, so the advantage of a Tesla bot style humanoid robot, I mean, if they go in the direction that I think they're probably going, I mean, the, the reason you do mm-hmm. a humanoid robot is because it's general and it's flexible. So in order to make it general, flexible and easy to use at the software end, you want something where you can demonstrate a task or you can give simple ver- verbal instructions to it and it can and it can do its job, which is different. I mean, industrial robots right now, they have this whole they have all of these specialties that service mm-hmm. them, but they're very different kinds of specialties and they're much more technical. If if Tesla succeeds at making the, a Tesla bot that's on the track to being generally usable, like something that, that at the end of its arc of development is something that people can have in their home that you could trust to take care of your mom or watch your kids, right? On the, on the arc to going there, one of the first things you want to do is, is make using and instructing it relatively simple. So there will be some people who are sitting down at computers mm-hmm. and writing programs and stuff that will go into Tesla bots. But I think there will be a much larger number of people who will have, you know, you'll be the guy in the factory and you've got 10 Tesla bots and your job is, you know, if they're feeding the the, the robots in the cage, the, the, you know, as the, you know, factories aren't static. They constantly evolve, especially as Tesla's factories. They mm-hmm. evolve really rapidly. You you switch out your products, you improve your processes, you make changes and that kind of stuff. So there's going to be a constant need. And and if the if you have Tesla bot style robots, you know, dynamic, easy to program, flexible human robots, those mm-hmm. that's going to be the point team when you make changes. Just like right now, the point team is humans. You make a change on your on your production line. The first thing that you do is the people change, right? And then once the people have that, they, then then you start to automate those things. But you uh, automation is brittle compared to people. So the first thing that changes, mm-hmm. and the thing you change the most often, the most frequently, is the people in the factory. And the Tesla bot will. You know, it'll be the second tier of that. It won't be as flexible as a human being, but it'll be way more flexible than an industrial robot. So, you know, every 10 Tesla bots are going to need a human being to do the care and feeding of the Tesla bots, right? To show them the task, to make sure that they're doing it right, to update their task when things inside the factory change. Um, so, you know, you'll, you'll be a platoon leader for a platoon and like, that'll be a really interesting job to see pop up. And it's, it's not a job where Tesla's only going to need like five mm-hmm. of those guys, you know, if Tesla's got 3,000 robots, then, you know, they're going to need 500 people who are platoon leaders for teams of robots. So, I, but you'll see the whole hierarchy of stuff, just like with computers, right? There's people who work in assembly code, people who program mm-hmm. GPUs, and there are people who just do, you know, JavaScript for websites at the at, at the other extreme. Or, you know, you use your Google spreadsheet to... Uh, you know, to solve a problem or build a model or something like that. You're also programming. You're also using a computer, but you're just at a totally different level of stack. Some people will be building tools for other people. You'll have all these layers and mm-hmm. it'll be a big enterprise and there will be a lot of people involved in it. That's a very interesting um, sort of uh, 
rabbit hole that we're going down. And, and Eric, maybe alongside this conversation asks, would it be a good move to open source the body instruction code as well? How do you, how do you guys think about that? Or James, how do you think about that? Um, I'm sure there, well, uh, it, you know, what layer are we talking about again at the, at the assembly, at the driver, at the operating mm -hmm. system, you might have mm -hmm. one answer at the top end. The, the instruction code is, hey, bot, <laughs> you know, you're, it's yeah. verbal instructions yeah. or it's like, here, here, I want you to do this. And you demonstrate the task and then mm -hmm. it tries to, you know, and uh, managing bots in the near term until they're really good, you know, we're probably 10 years away or more than that mm -hmm. is going to be like, you know, operate, you know, managing kids in a kindergarten or something. You're going to be trying to instruct and get get cooperation out of these, you know, not quite human, not fully capable uh, systems that you're one when you have experience, you'll learn, well, if I demonstrate it to the robot this way, it'll learn it faster than if I demonstrate it that way. Or, you know, how to just like, you know, when you when you talk, if you dictate text messages to your phone, you learn a certain manner of speaking, there will be, a, you know, a manner of dealing with the robots and people will become proficient at it. It'll be a skill. So, yeah. So, I mean, that stuff is as open source as it could be. You, you shoot a YouTube mm -hmm. video of you instructing your bot and you've just open sourced the code at the top end of the stack. Down the stack, there will be people who will want to keep it proprietary in various industries because mm -hmm. they'll have stuff they want to protect or and for security reasons, too. And one of the things about the bots, not at the lowest level, not at the highest level, but there will be intermediate lever levels where you you want to keep a lid on changes that can be made, just like we do with compute, computers that access the mm -hmm. internet today. You, we, we exercise a lot of control over certain layers of the stack to keep the system secure overall. And you know, so everybody is protected, and we can, you know, you can enter your credit card into your web browser, and, and it, you, you know, it's not going to be used in North Korea next week to buy <laughs> stuff. So. Mm -hmm. um, you know, similarly, there will be layers that you're not going to want to open source. Mm -hmm. At least you're not. I mean, you know, it's an interesting thing. SSH is open source. SSH is an incredibly important tool mm -hmm. that we use for, uh, you know, uh, the the code for how the, you know, certificate exchange in web browsers. It's open source. You can inspect it. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's open in the sense that anybody can modify it anywhere. Right. We, you there you have to exercise a certain amount of control in order to be able to guarantee a certain level of service to the to non-technical ultimate users, right? Got so it. not everything will be open, but mm -hmm. I think most of it will be. Makes sense. Um, Ishan, go ahead. No. Uh, oh. just, yeah, I'm you. curious. Yeah, technically in the maybe short to medium term, what does it look like to train? Like, what does the Tesla bot learning new skills actually look like? You know, building out models um, that are probably sitting on top of foundation models or, uh, yeah, what does all of the the actual technical nitty gritty look like there? Yeah, so that's a moving target too. So what it looks mm -hmm. like on day one and what the robot can do on day one yep. will be really different. The, the better the robots get, the easier easier it will be interactive and the more forgiving it'll be in the short run. Well, to make it more exact, maybe we say at the point that Tesla bots are first being shipped to customers outside of Tesla. A, a lot. I think a lot of the early process ends up looking a lot like FSD where you, and 
with the exception, like there, there isn't a layer on top of FSD that we let people program. Mm -hmm. And there will be a layer on top of the bot that we let people program. But there's there will be a ton of a lot of the hard work is going to be building the, the foundational technology. I mean, mm -hmm. like users are rarely going to need to modify the way their robot walks, but you want it to be able to walk and you want to be able to go upstairs. You want to be able to walk mm -hmm. up a ramp, walk across the yard. So like all that stuff has to be done. And on day one, it might be, it's not so good with steps and it's not so good with sand. Right. Or you don't want it mm -hmm. walking in a gravelly, uh, you know, parking lot or something like that. And, you know, it'll get over that stuff and it'll get better. It, it, it'll, it's an interesting question, like what level of sort of locomotion function do you have to get to before you can mm -hmm. put it out in a factory if everything is a flat concrete floor and the only thing you have to worry mm -hmm. about is not hitting a wall, that's, you know, that's a pretty low bar. You can probably do that pretty soon. You might have to get a lot higher before you turn it loose in the world or you let it operate in other people's factories. But of course, the goal in the long run is to take advantage of how fle the, the flexibility of this, of this thing. I think mm -hmm. it's going to be pretty clunky starting out. Uh, humanoid robots are pretty clunky, in the world, especially because our instinct as a human being is to evaluate a humanoid robot against humans. And humans are like, humans are amazing. We're incredibly capable. So every robot is going to look really bad for quite a long time. To people, but they could. But I think they'll be quite functional in within a, within a restricted domain. Yeah, are you surprised by the by the progress that Tesla has made so far to have a robot ready to be shown? We hope this year, or were you like? How how do you think about that first step? Is it is it is it within the realm of like if you're going back a year ago when this thing was first talked about? Did you envision something being shown as early as this year, or did you see it being later on? Like, how did you think about that? Um, it it's going to completely depend on how they. Well, I mean, they, they, they could show. <laughs> they could impress us. They could impress us, and there are labs out there doing you know, locomotion, for example, with neural networks, uh, not so much on bipeds. There's a lot more work done on the quadrupeds because most of the labs doing this don't have a ton of money and that's a much less expensive and less risky mm -hmm. platform to work on. Um, locomotion is pretty close to being solved. In fact, you could argue it's solved within certain constraints. Like there are approaches that are known to work. You could apply them in the bot. Maybe Tesla will adopt one of those. Maybe Tesla will decide that they don't want to and locomotion will be clunkier in the short run because in the long run, they have, they have uh, you know, goals that they want to get to that are architecturally incompatible with the existing, uh, with the, the approaches that actually work well today. It, and one of the things I expect to learn is like what's their focus? Because it's a big problem. Like the humanoid robot mm -hmm. problem is much bigger than the FSD problem. There, there are a ton of things that you just don't need in an FSD car. They're going to have to work in the robot, and they're going to have to be pretty good. And Tesla could decide not to do that stuff in the beginning. They, they could, you know, with, with Starship, it was like let's build a Starship factory. We're going to make tens of thousands of rockets, and we'll just we're going to get better along the way. So the first ones will be clunky, but you know, the process is important. So if, if part of what Tesla wants to do is to build a robot factory and learn to make robots and that kind of stuff, then they might go out the gate really quickly with something that's relatively low functionality, but gets them something. Um, and then they could decide they're gonna throw that away and start over again in a year or two years or three years. Or it could be that mm -hmm. their plan will be, no, we want everything we do to be on a straight line to our ultimate goal and they know where they wanna go 
And, you know, and those, those paths will look different in the early rounds of what comes out. And so when we see their first couple of products and we see their first product, we'll start to get a sense of like, what is the path that they think is the right way to go through this? Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of viable approaches that you could take. Or certainly there are a lot of different approaches that if you were putting together this effort and making a pitch to somebody to do the, this development, there are a lot of different approaches uh, that you could take. And they might do more than one. You know, sometimes you want to do more than one. So I, that's that's something that I, I'm actually more interested in what we learn about their development process than I am about the details, whatever the first product is, because the mm-hmm. second product, the third product, they're, you know, it's going to change. So it's going to change faster than FSD did. It's going to change really fast. And one, the, mm-hmm. the first talk I heard from Andre that was really interesting was when he talked about how they did the internal development of FSD. Like the, the data engine, like that was brilliant. The way that they broke the the the, the thing up, this idea that, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have a team and they're going to make the neural networks and we're going to have this other team and they're going to consume the tools made by the, by the main team and they're just going to turn the crank. There's This is the thing that we mm-hmm. need, like the data, da, 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 da. and I, I thought that was incredibly clever. Mm-hmm. The way they do training, like Andre talked a couple of times about how, because, um, not just FSD is an unbelievably huge and complicated neural network model. So how do you break that down into modules? So you can give a part to this guy and a part to that guy, and they can both make mm-hmm. progress on their own. They don't have to be super tightly coordinated. When you rebuild the system, how do you build rebuild just one part? So you can iterate on a subset to work out a bug and then integrate that back into the, to the whole thing. Th- these were all mm-hmm. totally problems. Like nobody really even thought about how to do this. And, you know, Andre came out and he talked about how they were doing that. And on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, it's not like E equals MC squared. It's not some like quantum leap forward that nobody thought of. It was one of many things that people might have thought would work, but they had it working, right? They had a team of like 50 or hundred people. They were iterating a product. They were shifting every week, every two weeks, updates on these things. And then to me, that was like an incredible gift to the, ind- to the machine learning community, to the industry, right? It's like, this might not be the best way to do it. We're not saying it's the best possible way. There might mm-hmm. be other better ways, but this way works. Like you could just adopt this process for your whatever mm-hmm. you're going to make for your AI in the real world thing, and you could do it. So, you know, they have, you know, an organization and a process that they understand, and it kind of would make sense for them to sort of adopt that as their first cut for how they approach so I'm expecting to see a similar team developing neural networks for perception. They have mm-hmm. to add for neural networks for locomotion. I, I think neural networks for locomotion in the long run is really important to enable. Uh, it, that is, there's a ton of yeah. feedback that a robot body is a lot mm-hmm. more complicated than a car. Like, you know, if you mm. turn off the control system for a car, it doesn't fall over on its side, mm. right? There are a lot of things. You, and, the you know, there's just so many more degrees of freedom and so many more potential surfaces and whatnot mm-hmm. that you have to deal with. You really want to take the intelligence that you have that a neural network makes available, and you want to apply that to the problem. Now, a lot of robots today, they're done with, with conventional motion control. Like, you know, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. This is still true, but famously Boston Dynamics, they just, they use conventional, you know, control uh, systems for doing that, but they're really limited. Mm -hmm. You're you're just not going to get the, you're not going to extract the potential of that humanoid robot body if you restrict yourself to those kinds of things. But then on day one, you're just trying to get a demo working or you don't want to worry about locomotion, Mm -hmm. you want to worry 
worry about pick and place. Maybe you bolt that in. I would kind of be disappointed if they did that. Like I really mm -hmm. want to see them just do the stack, the neural network end to end and, and work out the kinks as they go. And, and that's a thing that we'll learn. I mean, mm -hmm. experts in the field, like you can look at the robot and you can tell if it's running a neural network or if it's running PID code. Like people yeah. who've, you've watched a few videos of the neural, the, the, of the robots at locomote with neural networks and the robots that, that run on regular code, it's obvious just looking at them, mm -hmm. which one it is. So maybe we'll get to see that. So a lot of people have this idea that whatever they unveil on AI day is going to be pretty close to the final, at least first iteration of the product, because that's been historically something that Tesla does with their cars. Mm -hmm. But um, so are you in a camp that kind of agrees with that? Or would you think that it's maybe more in line with like Neuralink presentations or those types of things where it's much earlier in the development, we're just kind of getting the flywheel going, dipping our toes in the water of going down just a completely new and uncharted path? Uh, so the, the work I've done looking at the mechanics of building a mass produced robot suggests to me that, uh, that the place that you want to go is not a place that you can start out. Sorry, my idiot meter is kicking in. Uh, the CO2 level in the office is up. Um, the, uh, so I think that the core, the core technology that's going to go into building you know, most of the elements of the robot body, including the hands, the hands are super hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, like it might be that you can't even do a rough prototype of those for a couple of years because you have to build yep. this foundational stuff. So you yep. have to start with something. And so I guess the, so the question is uh, a question might be in that situation. Well, do I want to start with something that's kind of functionally equivalent, but say expensive or hard to make, or maybe it doesn't have mm -hmm. as many degrees of freedom, or maybe it moves more slowly than I would like it to. And in the short run, I'll deal with that. Or do I do something clunkier? Like I'm going to, I'm going to have the hands team go work on the hand mm -hmm. and they're going to take that offline for a year or two and try to figure out how to make a really yep. good. And in the meantime, we're going to have some stupid gripper or whatever on the robot. Like that's another thing that you could do. Tesla's presentations, they're this mix of marketing pizzazz and technical demonstration. And in this case, it's a mm -hmm. recruiting event, which makes it even more opaque. And yeah. like, I could see it going either way, mm -hmm. depending on what you're prioritizing. Like, do, do we want to really wow the audience uh, outside the room? Do we really want to wow the audience mm -hmm. inside the room? Like, what message do they want to send? Mm -hmm. Or alternately, maybe they don't want to send a message. Maybe they're in the PR is for schmucks, you know, thing that, mm -hmm. that, that they often seem like they are. I don't think they really are, but they often seem like they are. And they're just like, hey, we're going to show you a little of what we're developing. And we're just, you know, like, start, like mm -hmm. I don't think the Starship... I don't think they made it look that way for marketing, but it worked yeah. great for marketing. Yeah. <laughs> the marketing yeah. it worked out great. But you can imagine like Neuralink is the opposite end of the thing. Like nobody wants, very few people want to see the intermediate stages of Neuralink because the biology and surgery and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. is kind of cringeworthy, right? So maybe they hide that. Mm -hmm. And, and which one would the robot be? Do you want the robot to be super pizzazzy? Is that something you want to go for? Or, or mm -hmm. do you just want to be super nuts and bolts? Because you yeah. want people to really believe, you know, that you're, that you have a clue that you're not smoking mirrors, right? You're going to do it for real. And you certainly don't have to build it out in the middle of nowhere with open buildings where everyone can take mm -hmm. pictures with 
It would be kind of cool if they did. <laughs> it would be. All four of us would nerd out and go there and take some pictures. <laughs> With the giant camera out in the I'm parking sure lot. Right. So, um, speaking of new... Go ahead, Ishan. Sorry, go ahead, Farzad. Well, I, just a quick one. It's just, uh, so maybe, because I'm curious, like from a technical aspect, I'm wondering if Tesla will show something that may surprise you, James, but like, I'll be like, I don't know what the hell this is. Like, what what would be something that would surprise you for the positive in AI day two that maybe the layman wouldn't understand? Like, what would make you really go like, holy crap, I wasn't aware they're this far along that it's completely like the rest of us would be like, oh, cool, pretty colors and numbers. Like, what do you think? Uh, well, I've said Sorry before, the I, there's so many things. There, there's so many things that are really hard in robotics that don't, that yeah. because we're used to human beings and because we judge robots against humans, which are just incredible and in their physicality and dexterity and grace, um, that uh, a lot of things that would be underwhelming if you, if you evaluated them, like, you know, opening... Uh, Picking up something slippery, pick up a cat. That was, that was an example. Like picking, mm -hmm. if you picked up a kitten, like if you could mm -hmm. pick up a kitten without hurting the kitten, without mm -hmm. freaking out the kitten so that the kitten cooperated and that kind of stuff, hold it and pet it, right? I think that's the kind of thing that to a late audience, I mean, they'd love it. Oh, it's so cute and that kind of stuff. But the, mm -hmm. you know, the people in the control world, their heads would explode because that is so yeah. far off the you know, over the horizon right now. So that's an example of something that you could do. And maybe, maybe you would do it as a gimmick. Like if you thought you could pull it off, maybe you would do that because you know, it would really wow the audience that, that mm -hmm. you care about, but there's, there are way simpler things than that. Just, um, I think the example of, you know, walking up on stage and shaking someone's hand, just walking gracefully. Like if you can mm -hmm. walk with a human like gait, like humanoid robots can't do that right now. Mm -hmm. You walk with a human like gait, uh, so what was it? I think I was talking to John, uh, you know, Dr. Know-it-all um, yesterday. And uh, we, 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 we were fantasizing about, you know, put it, put, put, put pants on it, give it a trench coat and have it walk up on stage. Yeah. Because if it got up on stage and, <laughs> off and you thought it was a robot, mm -hmm. that would Holy slay shit. people, experts in the yeah. field. But, you know, yeah. to people whose recipe, whose understanding of robots is what they see on the big screen, right? They're not going to be impressed. Yeah. <laughs> but the experts would just lose it over that. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. I got one for you, Farzad, and it's a great segue into the question I was about to ask. Uh, okay. What if uh, they showed skin? And imagine this. I mean, it's probably one of the hardest things to do. But yeah. uh, if you look at what uh, Elon's ecosystem already has, and you pick up something like Neuralink, uh, they've already mm -hmm. figured out how to connect with a bundle of nerves, which means they already have microwiring figured out. Right. What if they just put, uh, let's say, a suite of sensors, one heat sensor, a pressure sensor and a bunch of others, uh, you know, in a small one millimeter, I don't know, tile and tessellated it on some kind of a resin. Used, uh, you know, something from Neuralink to actually bring all of that back into uh, probably, let's say, you know, you've got one uh, uh, chip for the arm and you've got uh, skin around potentially the fingertips at certain mm -hmm. places that probably not the entire thing to begin with. But uh, if this does get demonstrated and, you know, to your point, that will really help lift that cat. Mm -hmm. And it's a mind boggling problem as of today. So 
Skin is hard. Yeah, it's, you know, when when we saw, looking at what Tesla was doing in the neural networks through autopilot, like the first versions were just like cut and paste copies from academic papers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember saying to Dave Lee, I think the first conversation we ever had, I was kind of disappointed, right? I was expecting to see, you know, some more insight. But later I thought about it and I thought, no, you want, there's so many things you don't know how to do uh, starting out. Mm-hmm. So start, yeah. so the things you can take off the shelf to get you going, take those. And you don't, you don't want to mess around with any weird architectures or anything because it's hard enough, like, you know, figuring out your data pipeline, how are we going to get all the labelers and just recruiting labelers and writing the labeling tools and like getting your, you know, your training apparatus or you've got to do all this stuff at the same time. Right. And then you, but, but what did happen, what I was very pleased to see is that around the time they got into FSD, they started really bringing in novel stuff that I had never seen anywhere else. Like they had new approaches to, and it kind of, you know, it makes sense in a couple of ways. They, you know, and you could think in one, you could kind of think of it as like they had gone as far as they could by just like copy pasting other people's stuff and making, you know, changing the hyperparameters or whatever for it. Because they did. They, 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 they did, they started out with this inception based network and then they started fiddling around the edges, but they didn't, they did, it was mostly straightforward extrapolation of, of the idea behind the inception vision network that they started with. And then later they started really getting much further afield. Most of the stuff is still based on techniques that somebody else proves out, but they're building their own architectures and stuff. Right. Yeah. And now, uh, you know, some of the components of the things that we see them doing in planning do actually seem like they're totally novel and innovative, like internally invented kind of stuff. So to me, skin feels like it's the kind of thing that you get at that level, right? Mm-hmm. So you go, you have a couple of generations of, of your, because you don't, skin, you get a lot of stuff from skin. Like it would be really great yeah. to have, you know, a tactile membrane that was pressure sensitive, uh, that you could spread over a lot of the surface of the robots. There's definitely a lot of, a lot of utility there, but you can, it's not, it's not going to uh, add a lot of functionality until you've got much more basic problems solved. Right. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's farther down the list. So like if they had a team in house working on skin on a, on a, on an artificial skin, like that would be great. I wouldn't expect them to talk about it right now because it'd be way too subjective and, you know, it's the kind of problem where you can look at it and you can say, well, there's like 50 different ways we got to do it. And we're going to spin up 10 teams that are going to look at 10 different ways. And you just, it's hard to explain to a lay audience, right? True. So, yeah. But my question was more around, like, uh, would something like this, would you see uh, a lot more multidisciplinary uh, recruitment efforts and just the team, right? Uh, not just AI and software focus, but also... Uh, a lot more like, you know, uh, folks from biology, biophysics, um, from other areas of expertise sort of coming in to build the Tesla bot and not just, you know, mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and uh, AI uh, folks, etc. getting together. But we would traditionally feel like is biomimicry something that you would see in the recruitment efforts itself? Uh, probably. I mean... If they were doing it now, that would be really impressive. It would be they're very ambitious. They're, uh, 
I think you will see a lot of disciplines that aren't just, you know, software and hardware engineers, because it, there's this material science uh, yeah. thing that I, the, uh, you know, I keep talking about the actuators, like the actuators are a really big deal coming up with a really yeah. good actuator. Like we just don't, there just isn't anything which is ideal for a robot. And if, you know, we're going to make hundreds of millions of these things, like it, we're, it's going to get very optimized. And somewhere along that path, you really want to figure the actuator out. And that's going to take a bunch of, uh, a that's going to take a lot of specialty, which isn't just, you know, electronics and, and neural networks. So, but biology, it like, I think human factors is going to be something you're going to see them do a lot of recruiting on because figuring out the user interface, like how to get robots to interact cooperatively with people, how to make them easy mm -hmm. to train. Like there's, there's a significant amount of novel territory to cover there. And you mm -hmm. might want psychologists to, you know, like people that you normally wouldn't sort of associate with a hardware engineering uh, project in there. Well, I didn't even think about that angle. There was a, there was a comment someone made, I forget who made it on the Monday, but you're talking about like the human relationship. What if the, what if the bot sort of shows up uh, and then there, it sees a crowds of people and just it like freaks out. It doesn't know how to handle the situation of <laughs> being surrounded by humans. And it has like a bot stage fright moment, you know? So it's like all these different sort of um, variables that become, you know, they're so abstract for me to think about today. But I think what's sort of to the point of the panel is like, as we go through the development process, like all these adjacent fields that the skin thing, I, I, I've never thought about that. And you should bring it up. I'm like, holy shit, that makes a lot of sense. Being able to feel what you're touching. Like that's unintuitive for me. Like, like it's a bot. It's going to know how to do that, but like, okay, but how, <laughs> if it doesn't have the sensors or the connection to the, to the brain, and it doesn't know how to interpret that data set that's coming through the fingertips, how is it going to know to do that? Right. So, and it's like the complexity of, of being a human, like, it's almost like we're seeing just how complex to your point, like how complex people actually are. Like if we break yeah. it down to the nuts and bolts, holy shit, humans have a lot going on. Like a, a lot is happening up here that's processing all the information that's happening in real time. And I, I don't know, like I'm curious if there's gonna be any other company that's, like I wonder how many things are gonna come up adjacent to Tesla as we go into this robotic age that's gonna help maybe the, the broader population understand just how, I don't know, how unique we are and how difficult of a problem it is and how game-changing of a technology this actually is to replicate uh, or try to help us move forward together as, as a sort of like a species with some help. I don't know, like th that just thought just came to my mind and I don't know if anybody wants to like uh, sort of riff off of that, but um, it's gonna be interesting to watch. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, there's one really interesting question that kind of builds on that that you touched on in your interview with John. And that is like how critical is really good proprioception for actually creating a good first functional prototype? Hans, help sure. us uh, understand what that really big word you just said is. <laughs> James will handle it. Yeah, proprioception yeah. is yeah, it's <laughs> it's internal feedback that your body is telling you about mm. the joint position and the tension on your muscles and and joints. Uh, so here's an interesting observation: human beings, like there's a people who suffer from neuropathy, often they their proprioceptive systems become impaired and they lose the ability to walk. Now they can still feel. They still have pressure sensors on their feet that they can feel. They still have their sense of balance. It's still okay. But walking becomes really hard 
for them to do that. And this is a human being, right? Humans, we, they have very sophisticated control systems. Somebody who might have known how to walk well their, their whole life. But once their proprioceptive sensors start to degrade, they, they have a lot of difficulty getting around. Um, I think there's, that's a clue about how important proprioception is. We build robots mostly without it today. In fact, one of the first problems that I was really interested in looking at when, uh, when I saw ETH Zurich does these really great um, totally neural network training, sim to real robot work. And I've always been really interested in the whole proprioception thing. This last year, they came out with a paper where they demonstrated um, they have a, you know, they work with these spot type robots and they demonstrated because they one of the challenges with proprioception is a vision is a really useful tool. And, and incidentally, human beings, vision, we use both vision and proprioception to maintain our balance and stride when we walk. It's if, uh, if you tilt your head back and you try to walk, or if you close your eyes and you try to walk, uh, even if you're in a completely open space, your gait is much less sure if you close your eyes because you're your brain uses the level, the horizon level and the motion of things in the environment to judge your, uh, you know, how your body is moving in, in conjunction with your uh, semicircular canals and your balance mechanisms and that. And it, it's also using the feedback from the amount of tension in your muscles and the joint angles as you're moving around. It uses all of this stuff. And, and degradation in any of these things has a significant impact in, in, uh, in people's ability to locomote well. But most of the locomoting robots we build lack one or more of these sense modalities. So really interesting question to ask. And, and one of the reasons we haven't traditionally put these sense modalities in is because if you're not using a neural network, because remember a neural network is this unknown black box and I stuff a bunch of inputs in and I say, this is the behavior now train, right? So the more inputs I put in, like if, an input, if I put an input into a neural network and it's not useful, the neural network will just ignore it. There's no downside to hooking it up. So with a robot, like to a first approximation, you give it tons of sensors, you wire everything up to the neural network and you let it see what it can make use of, right? And then, and so a thing that you can do at the end of that is you can go back, like once the robot's actually pretty good or the neural network has learned its job, you can go back and say that, now what did it find a, a good use for, right? Because the probably the sensors that it's just ignoring, those are the ones you don't need. And then on the other ones, you can look at how big an impact they have on how good the robot is at doing different kinds of things. And you can get a sense of, oh, we better put this sensor in. <laughs> uh, we don't know why, but this one's really important. It's really using it a lot kind of thing. Like I thought that would be a really interesting study to do. But because it's a thing we haven't done with robots. We've, we've dumbed robots down because we have these very simple physics-based models that we use and these very simple control models that we've used. And so proprioception doesn't, hasn't been on the list because it's hard to know how to use it, right? If you have to write the program, but if you feed it into a neural network, now the sky's the limit, right? You can toss, maybe temperature matters, <laughs> you know? It's, uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that might not occur to you that could turn out to be important and useful. And so, yeah, I expect them to use that stuff. I expect them to toss it in. And I think, I mean, I, I would say the evidence from animals is that proprioception is really important and it's really useful. Anyway, so the ETH guys, they have proprioception in their robot and they also have a vision system in their robot. And one of the problems that they were struggling with up until recently and that they finally figured out how to do last year was how do you how do you balance between those two? And they, cause they would have these, like they would have the robot walking in grass where it couldn't see the ground. 
And when it couldn't see the ground, the balance between like, how much do you feel your way through or when it's walking through snow, like they have this great video of their, you know, their robot, it's walking in, you know, knee deep snow, essentially. So it can't see the ground at that point. And it doesn't really have a good horizon either. So it has to rely more on proprioception in that kind of situation. Mm -hmm. But for instance, if you want to move fast in an environment, which is like, say, stairs or obstacles, you're very vision dependent. So then you want vision to matter a lot. So how do you use both of those and not have not be using the wrong one in the wrong situation. And they found a they found a way for the robot to train itself to figure out that balance in a variety of different trains. Right. Got so it. Uh, proprioception is uh, really the biological equivalent of uh, perhaps uh, sense of fusion, right? And with FSD, uh, what Tesla sort of arrived at is that. Uh, we're probably not at, uh, you know, a place where sensor fusion is done very well, or even uh, we probably have the wrong set of sensors that we are trying to fuse. Uh, yeah. The, the sensor fusion problem between radar and vision, uh, you know, they have an IMU. Uh, and I think they're probably still using, they're probably still doing sensor fusion with the IMU. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not, it doesn't have the same sort of uh, collision with vision that radar does. I, with, with radar and vision, you frequently, it's very tempting to have, have situations where one is impaired and you want to rely on the other. And if you're in a situation, like I, I have the, the, the example of, uh, you know, the, the back end of, the, of a truck, a fire engine, you know, fire engine's classic. You get a fire engine parked to the side of the road, but of the fire engine is very slightly sticking out into the road. And your camera sees this weird vehicle that it doesn't see a lot. And it's parked in a place it rarely sees vehicles parked, you know, and it's, it's a weird shape. And it's got this part that's kind of sticking out. And your vision system looks at that and says, that, is that in the road? I can't, I'm not sure if that's in the road. And the radar system, because the fire truck's not moving, says there's nothing there, <laughs> right? And it's just mm -hmm. a nightmare scenario where figuring out the right way heuristically to balance between those two is tough. And trying to train a neural network to do it is hard because you get so few examples, so few yeah. real world examples of that to train against. Mm -hmm. And in the end, you know, Tesla kind of found yeah, maybe we don't need the radar <laughs> because it's, it, but you know, forcing the vision system to get better at doing that rather than letting it use radar as a, like, it, it's a crutch that breaks sometimes, right? And so when your crutch breaks and you're relying on your crutch, like that's bad. Yeah. And so let me bring it to the, sorry. Got you, Sean. Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, so I was just asking when we bring this over to the Tesla bot and we are trying to solve for uh, proprioception and we are essentially, it's probably not just going to be vision. It'll uh, probably be a bunch of internal sensors, their pressure sensors, uh, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of others as well. So uh, do you see this being uh, one of the key, I would say step goals to achieve good sensor fusion? Uh, for the entire project to get to a level where, you know, there's confidence in leave, you know, taking it out to the wild. Like be as before this, uh, confidence in the Tesla bot will not be there, even for the internal team. Um, that'll depend on the sensors that they go with. Like my expectation is they'll use vision 
They'll use balance and they'll use proprioception as the primary components of doing locomotion. And that fusing those is going to be important. And I expect them to do it. And, uh, and I think fusing those actually isn't too tough. Now, if they do what a lot of robot companies do, which I don't think they will, a lot of robot companies, they put a crappy low-grade LIDAR on the robot in addition to vision and the other stuff. Because just like with, um, it makes it so you're, you can get your demo working faster, right? You get, you get certain things that you know. But, and, you know, it, you know a low-resolution, low-frame rate LIDAR combined with vision, those could get to be pretty hard to fuse in the same way that radar can be hard to fuse with vision. And so, you know, if they decided that they were going to use those kinds of sensors, then sensor fusion does become a big obstacle to getting things to work. But much like, it, you know, the, the radar and vision example for the cars. But there are lots of sensors that they just don't collide in a way. Essentially, it's not hard for the neural network to figure out when to ignore one of them. If it's not contributing. Yeah, so in that view, what is the what is the BevNet style goal that you can give to the neural network that helps to fuse all the different sensors into some, you know, unified model? Is it just actually accurately moving in the space and not falling down? Um, or is it more sophisticated than that? Uh, so perception is... The, you know, the, the building block with the biggest challenge in the short run, which is the most important and the one that you have to fix. I mean, locomotion is a little bit separate, a little bit separate, but interacting with the environment means building a model of the environment, knowing it's a 3D world. And, and you know, the same thing. One of the things that the BevNet gives you is a way to get the neural network to understand that the world is 3D and to integrate it, I mean, and this is a little tougher in the, the car. If they, if they put a ton of cameras on the robot, so it's got eyes in the back of its head and maybe the head doesn't move. It might not be necessary to even articulate the head, right? You put multiple cameras around the head. That might be a better, cheaper way of doing it. And if it, if they want to integrate that into an understanding of the entire environment, well, then they got the BevNet problem again, similar to mm -hmm. what the car does. And maybe they'll do that. And maybe they would, uh, want to use to essentially copy paste the technique that they used to, to, to do that. But that getting to where you understand space and objects like that's, that's a big, mm -hmm. it's still an unsolved. It in the, you do see uh, models learn it, but uh, we haven't got a good solution for it. We haven't got a good solution where you could just say, oh yeah, we can take that technique, we can stick it in the robot and the robot will get you know, objects and space out of it. We, that, that's still unsolved. Um, they, Tesla's doing a decent job of it with the BEV approach. I can imagine there are better approaches. Certainly in the long run, that won't be the approach we use. There will be better techniques. There have to be much better techniques than that. But this is what they've got right now and that's what's working. And they, before the, the robot can do useful things, it has to perceive its environment. And that's still, you know, that's not done. It's not done for humanoid robots right now. Yeah, I think, I think what's interesting about this discussion is that if there was one thing that I think we might get at the, at the second AI day, 
with Tesla is that that I think that insight into how the Tesla bot is learning and what the long-term sort of vision that Tesla has on how these sensors are going to come together, I think are going to be very clear. That's that's sort of my, my um, or at least we're going to have a lot more insight than say a Boston Dynamics or whoever else, whatever other robotics company, I don't even know if that's a good example, into how exactly it's doing the motion. I think Tesla is going to be very, very open about it because of that recruitment effort. So I'm really curious to see, like I would love to get your take on this specific discussion after that, that event comes out because I feel like there's going to be so much in there to learn from um, for for this specific sort of how we're envisioning this thing going forward. Um, Hans, there was also, uh, I know Dojo was another topic that we wanted to touch on uh, as well. Uh, is there something that you want to get us started from that perspective? Or if James, if you, if you have anything else mm -hmm. you want to sort of uh, continue on this rabbit hole that we're in right now, or are you comfortable moving into Dojo a little bit? I'm, at, I'm, I'm at my limit just trying to answer questions here. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Hans. Yes. So one of the topics that came up in the community discussion um, really centered around Dojo versus, so I think maybe the best way to put it is just for a lay audience, what is the difference in the requirements from a high level for neural net training versus actually operating the neural nets in the edge and so they were talking about the limits of hardware three and how, you know, how much farther can we go with Dojo and training large models and still be able to actually run those neural nets after they've been trained in actual hardware three on in Tesla's or are we going to need to go to hardware four in order to be able to get use appropriate use out of the the neural nets that can be trained by dojo and then there's some follow-on questions about how that training might actually work in in dojo um so training um well training is more compute intensive than inferences running your model and uh it's i mean just for one thing when you're training you do you 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 forward propagate through the network and see what the error function is, and then you back propagate and update the weight. So at a minimum, you have to maintain the the, the back propagation applies to gradients, where gradient is like for every weight in the model, you keep track of how did it change as a function of this error function. Like, and what those gradients let you do is they let you figure out how to adjust each individual weight in the network after you do your forward pass and you under and you see the error that you got. So, so you have to keep track of all that stuff. And gradients take a lot more resolution to store. Like um, I mean, everybody uses gradients at full resolution. Uh, so you need more memory, you need a bigger computer, at least a couple times bigger or whatnot, just to be able to train at all. And uh, you do a lot of training. <laughs> Well, think about the, you know, Tesla's Tesla's forward pass runs on a million cars out in the real world, right? Mm -hmm. So imagine that you're trying to do all of the forward and, pa and backward passes in a data center. Well, now you need a million, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, there's this huge asymmetry of hardware between when you look at the whole fleet. Remember, mm -hmm. the whole fleet is gathering data that, that goes back to the training center, right? So at a minimum, you're going to need, if you're going to need, if you're going to have a computer that can ingest data from a whole fleet of cars and integrate that, even if you're cherry picking the data from the cars, it's just a lot of data. So, mm -hmm. so you do a lot of training and training is a development process and it's empirical. So a lot of training, like 
it's never the case <laughs> that you make a change to your corpus or you make a change to your training algorithm and you know what's coming out the other end. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you make those changes and you see what comes out. And sometimes you don't like what came out the other end. So the thing is you train a lot. You do it over and over and over and over again, right? You train different ways, you train, you change the hyperparameters. So so Dojo, if you, you know, the machine that you want in your data center, you're gonna run, you're just going to train a lot of neural networks all the time on enormous amounts of data. And, and so, you know, you, you can't really compare the hardware requirements because the car in the field, it's just running one version of the neural network, like in real time. And the one in the data center, it has to run it many, many times real time so it can get through that whole data set. And, and it has all this other stuff that it's got to keep track of. And you're going to do it over and over and over again. So you want it to be fast because your team is sitting around twiddling their thumbs, waiting for the results before they make their decision about what they're going to do. So the requirement is totally different. One other point, which is worth considering on the hardware three, hardware four thing. So when you... Uh, when you're training a neural network, the neural network that's getting trained, it has to have the capacity not just to do the job, but it has to have the capacity to learn the job. And learning the job involves exploring all these different ways you could go about doing the thing you're being asked to do. So neural networks in training, you want them to have a substantial amount of excess capacity so that they can simultaneously explore many different you know, ways of doing every particular little thing it's got to do so you want them to have a lot of capacity. And the bigger your neural network is, typically the faster they train because the more excess capacity it has, the faster it converges on good solutions, adequately good solutions. You can prune that whole thing down to just the one good solution when you put it in the car. And there are different dimensions on, on which this is true. One of the, I mean, one thing you can do is you can literally prune the net. Like you can make the neural networks a lot smaller if you want to. You can also reduce, you can do an analysis on the neural network where you look at where you need precision and where you don't need precision. And you can reduce the precision of the parts that don't need precision to, pr to provide good results. And this makes them a lot smaller. The neural networks that run in the car, they're all 8-bit integer neural networks. And the ones that they train are 16 or 32-bit floating point networks, and they have to have the gradient. So in uh, the, the hardware that you want to run in the field for doing inference and the hardware you want for training, they're just in two completely different universes in terms of capacity. And in an in a interesting way, the more capacity you have in your data center, the less capacity you need in the field, there is a trade-off there because that mm. process of like, of training the neural network and then pruning the neural network and then doing the precision analysis and shrinking it down, like that also take compute cycles. And the more excess capability you have in your, your data center, the more time you can spend doing that. So in an interesting way, like if your dojo is 10 times as powerful, maybe your hardware three only needs to be half as powerful, right? to do this stuff. Now, as to whether or not, you know, hardware three, like the specs it has right now are sufficient to do the job or, you know, there's this trade-off that Tesla's doing right now. Like they could have, and I think the original GP106, which is like 20 times slower than what they have in hardware three, I think if you have, you know, once you've solved, once you've got a really good solution for FSD, and, and some group of guys just goes off and they sit down for a year and they figure out how to make it really small and squeeze it and take out the stuff and whatnot, they might get it to run on GP106. I mean, if you're talking about what's the minimum floor necessary at all to ever be able to do the job, it's probably pretty low. 
but you know, we don't want to wait that long. We want to push a new release next week. We have these other things we'd rather do. So you, instead, you end up with like this economic trade-off. Like, what's the biggest computer that we can cheaply put in? Because you know, computers these days are like if you make the if you make your computer ten times less powerful, it doesn't get ten times cheaper. Like, there's a sweet spot, and it's a moving target. And hardware three, it was the sweet spot a couple of years ago when they did it. Hardware four will be the sweet spot when it comes out. Like, it'll be in that sweet spot. It's not overpowered. It's not underpowered. It's none. Not none of them is the bare minimum necessary in order to do the job. You could go lower, but your development would get more expensive. And there's no point in making your development more expensive or delaying your product if you're only going to save five bucks on the computer, right? Mm. So, so you, it's it's a it's a game of of uh, optimization. Like, what are the possibilities? Not like what's yeah, saying for your buck, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, is your intuition then? Because I think a lot of people are basically extrapolating the fact that current FSD beta uses both sets of hardware on the hardware three chip instead of allowing it to be fully redundant like it was originally designed and they're inferring from there that well it's just too big and that's why they're hitting the limits but so are you saying that basically your uh your take is that potentially they're just using all the resources that they have available because it allows them to do the fastest development research and it, so it's a misunderstanding uh, the idea that the original that the design is that you run these two identical copies of a neural network. There are lots of ways to get redundancy, and that especially with neural networks, with, with some kinds of algorithms like that's the only good way to get re true redundancy. But with a neural network, you don't need to do it that way. Um, especially in like a self-driving car application, you can have a limp mode. The, if you've got twice as much compute and you like, why restrict your application on it for 99.99% of the time you're gonna use it to only using half of the compute and throwing away the other half, even though you're paying for it and you're running it, right? A better approach is to size your algorithm to the compute resources that you have and have, uh, have a, have a um, a flexible, a graceful way of degrading down to perhaps significantly lower capability so that you can limp to the side of the road or you can limp home. At a minimum, the reason that the hardware has to be completely redundant is there are, if, if a chip dies, like that chip is gone, it's like 100% gone. So you have to have a replacement for that chip. Now in, in Tesla's case, they made a sock. It's a system on a chip, their, their core thing. They also have power supplies, camera inputs, and, and so forth. They they put two socks on because if a sock dies, it's just completely gone. And there's no limp mode if the computer's completely off. So at a minimum, you put two chips on there. And it's cheaper to put two chips than to have one big chip and one small chip or whatnot. You know, the, the chips, they're not that expensive themselves. So you put two chips on the thing and then you cross connect everything. So all the power supplies are connected to both CPUs and all the cameras are connected to both CPUs and so on. So that any individual component, hardware component can fail and you can still limp. Like that's smarter because if, you're, if your system makes 5% fewer errors, if you run twice as big a neural network on twice as much compute, and that's what you're gonna be doing 99.999% of the time, well, you wanna do that. You wanna spend your resources on that. The, the arguments are, you know, people trying to read the tea leaves and guess at whether hardware three is sufficient or hardware two, like that's, 
really hard. Like Tesla doesn't know that. Like nobody actually knows that. If you really wanted to know, is this hardware adequate? You'd have to do a design study around that. And you'd have to really look at all the, and nobody's going to spend their time on it. They're, they have a platform. They picked it to be the sweet spot for the basic economics of the what you know the computation requirements of of the application, and they build against that target and they make the best system that they can within that envelope. And if they have a bigger envelope, they can make a better system. How much better? Well, you kind of have to build it to you know to find out. So we we don't get hardware four because hardware three is inadequate. We get hardware four because there's like no point in continuing to buy hardware three when you can get a cheaper, better computer, you know? Uh, so that's why hardware four. And, that, and well, there will be a hardware five and six and seven and eight, and they won't necessarily be because like hardware four didn't work. It's just, you know, I mean, who has a, you know, an 8086 in their, in their, in their iPhone, <laughs> right? I mean, we just don't <laughs> buy those old computers. One, once the new one is there and it's at the same price, you use the new one because it makes everything better and easier, right? So yeah. I, so I uh, have a very different take on this stuff than, than some of the dialogue I've seen sort of guessing at whether or not it, it's going to be adequate. It's a, neural networks are incredibly fungible. Like they, mm. that, Doubling the doubling the the performance of your neural network sometimes it only gets you five percent increase in performance. Doubling the CPU, doubling the memory, doubling the data like th these uh, neural network scaling is log log scaling, right? So your error goes down with the log of the size of your database. So mm. uh, you know if you can get twice the compute for the same price, well you take it, right? It's free, but you probably don't spend twice as much money for twice the compute because it's rare that that 5% increase in, in functional accuracy of the system at the end of the day is a make or break for your application, but it might be a make or break for your economics. Got it. That's super helpful for me to understand better. So I really appreciate y'all sort of helping us think through that. Uh, does the, so, so to me, like as a layman, so what it sounds like to me is just Tesla's getting really, they've been getting very, very good at optimizing the amount of hardware they have available to themselves to be, to become much more efficient with the capabilities of the car. So they're, you know, they're using everything that's available to them to make the car do more things, right? And to be able to, or to do it quicker and to arrive to the end goal faster with, with the same amount of compute. And so how does the 36 frames uh, per second change. I don't know if it's live. I forget if it's live it or not. And maybe Hans, I think you proposed this question, but how does this fit within that sort of encapsulation of Tesla going on this march of really maximizing the hardware that's given to them? Maybe help us think through that a little bit, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. So was it Hans, you asked about the 36 frame per second frame rate change and what the... Yeah, it was one. It wasn't one that I had uh, proposed, but it was a question that came up in the community and they were asking... Mm -hmm what the impact of moving to 36 frames per second for FSD was going to be on the overall performance. And then Hans, people want to know what you're eating. <laughs> Goldfish. Goldfish. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somebody wanted to know what uh, James snacks on when he's super deep uh, thinking about the future. That's a good question. What do I say? What do you like to snack on James? Yeah. Uh, sugar is bad for me. I love it. Okay. It gives me headaches, <laughs> so I don't eat very much of it. My, actually, my girlfriend is this, my wife 
is an incredible cook. And so mm. my kitchen is a minefield. There's she, she just, my favorite ice cream is, uh, this, uh, hum, there's this, uh, boutique uh, ice cream maker in San Francisco called Humphrey Slocum. Mm. And they have this flavor that I like. It's called secret breakfast and it's bourbon and cornflakes. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just so good. And you can't get it here in LA. They don't seem to have a store nearby. So she makes it for me. And, uh, and I have to stay out of the kitchen when it's down. <laughs> It'll just be gone in a day if I do. No, I I love uh, snacks, but they're not good for me, so I stay away from them mostly. Okay. Um, okay. I like water. Water's good. Nice. Um, yeah. Me too. I was drinking some tea before and I got water. Sorry. Go ahead, James. Yeah. So the so the frame rate. Uh, I think the biggest change in frame rate is it makes the system simpler. If if you want to run different parts of the system at different frame rate, we know the cameras run at 36 frames. And so all the data comes in at 36 frames. And, and uh, since, because everything flows from the frames that come in from the camera, you know, the simplest design is just like set of frames comes in, chunk, chunk, chunk. You know, you have a pipeline, everything moves one notch down when a frame comes in. Like that's a simple synchronous design. But you could imagine that uh, you might, at some point in your development go, God, you know, we really want to run this part faster <laughs> than, and if we run it faster with the code base that we have right now, we got to slow something else down. And you can mm -hmm. see some other guys saying, well, you know, this part of the neural network, it only needs to update every second or every three times a second. So we'll slow this down and we'll make that part faster. And now you've got parts that don't all run at the same speed. And it, it might be uh, fine, to do that. It might not be much of a performance impediment, but over time what happens is the part you wanted to run faster, you find other ways to make it faster. There's other optimiz optimizations you can do in the system. So maybe you bring it all back to 36. And you can imagine that once you start running different parts of the network at different speeds, now you have this whole thing of like the average, do you buffer in between, like how do you deal with the rate mismatches and it adds complexity. And there might be points in the development when that's something you're willing to accept because your guys are sure that this critical problem that's been beating you in the head, it would be better if we just ran this part of the network, you know, twice as fast. And so you guys go out and they figure out a way to do that. But getting, you know, getting the system sort of optimized or throwing away like the other thing is you, they have all this stuff like shadow mode. They have all kinds of stuff that runs in the system that isn't necessary to drive the car that they use for taking data and that and that stuff. And maybe at some points they decide they don't need it or they have a legacy neural network like one of the things that we saw was, you know, the this is like uh, it's kind of like biological evolution almost. You know, that they end up with these vestigial neural networks <laughs> that were they were really important like five, you know, five uh, versions back, but they're hardly using it anymore. And but they haven't taken gone to the effort of like actually designing it out, migrating that function over to some other neural network. So stuff gets bigger, and then they trim it down, and then it gets bigger again, and then they trim it down. And after a trim cycle, well, that would be the natural time to go to 36 frames, because all of a sudden, there's this stuff you're getting rid of, and that frees up some resources, and you can use it to go back to 36. Why Elon, so Elon had a tweet where he was talking about getting the whole system, or I think it was a comment, actually, a verbal comment on stage someplace, where he talked about going back to 36 frames. And what it does depends on what you're not running at 36 frames and what that trade-off was. So it's pretty hard to predict. But one thing it definitely does is it makes your system simpler if you just run the whole thing at 36 frames. So 
I would imagine there are some bugs that will go away when they just run the whole system at 36 because it's not easy to, to build the system asynchronously. Okay. Do you think, do you think that change gets made in 1069 or do you think that's a different, different place where that gets changed? So it, like yeah. Elon's track record for predicting <laughs> what's going to make it into the, <laughs> the next worst. Step, at least it's not, it's not right. On. Yeah. But let's May, see. Go ahead, Ishan. Now it's just saying he keeps it interesting, keeps us guessing. Yeah, I, I yeah, don't. That's true. There, there's a population of people who would rather he shut up and not say anything that wasn't guaranteed to happen. And I'm totally at the opposite. And I just yeah. want to hear, like, if he was on Twitter all day long and it was just stream of conscious and 90% of it was BS, like that would yeah. be great because that would be more information. Like I'm willing to to sift through the, and I, I understand that, people who would rather see him talk less or concerned about public response, you know, to negative poten potential negative consequences of people to, who don't know him or don't know what's going on or, or whatever. Yeah. And I tend to not actually think that's that important. Maybe it is. I'm, I agree with you because I feel like that's the reason, I feel like that's the the hook that he has for the layman to get excited about a lot of the stuff that Tesla's working on. Like almost like that, hey, FSD is gonna be able to do these things, the bot's gonna be able to do these things. It's what gets people excited about these new technologies that are coming out. I mean, the reason why I, I was even part of the community in the first place was because of the grand vision of electric vehicles. And I'm not, I like cars, but I don't know how electric vehicles work. And then I became a huge nerd <laughs> when it came to, like, vehicle so i i hope he continues down that path and i, I don't think he's ever going to change i mean it seems like he's 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 has his mind he's, set up yeah it seems like he's getting quieter lately though i, I mean so. i don't i i hope it's because he's just distracted with other things and you know because twitter's mm -hmm. probably not a great use of his time sorry you know tweeting on twitter is probably not yeah. a great use of his time. um but uh you know, I like to hear it. Yeah, and he's my people. Like everything he says makes sense to me, right? Is um, mm. so like I I don't have difficulties with him talking as much as he wants to. And people do seem to get really upset. I'm I'm shocked at how divisive a figure he is. Like the negative reactions that people have to him shock me. Yeah. Yeah, I actually was doing a um, a little experiment on Monday. I went to downtown Austin, uh, and one of my video ideas was I'm going to ask a hundred random people on the street what they thought of Elon Musk, and I was just going to wear a black shirt. I'm going to make sure I'm not, you know, part. Nobody can tell I'm a Tesla f uh, person, and I couldn't even get. I only got two people to talk to me out of a hundred. I'm like, damn it! I want to know what you're thinking. <laughs> I want to know what you're thinking. Wait, but because they the wouldn't talk to you, or because they didn't want to talk about Elon Musk. I, I I think some of them were because of Elon and some of them were because they didn't want to talk to me, period. Uh, so it's like I was trying to get into the mindset of how like the broader public thought about his sort of like, like just what they thought of him, you know, because we get a, a certain angle from certain folks that are saying, you know, he's crazy person on Twitter saying all these insane things and he's very divisive. And then we have mm -hmm. people in the Tesla community saying he's actually a very unifying person because he's kind of bringing as he's mm -hmm. a magnet for people that want to move the future forward. You know, so it's it's a very interesting dynamic and I was looking to explore it. But I think maybe because it was a Monday evening. On, in Austin, I think everybody's just getting home from work and they just want to go home. You know, they don't want to talk to some random yeah. guy <laughs> walking around. It's, uh, um, I mean, I, I, I flip back and forth between thinking that it's mainly the media that has a problem with him and they have the megaphone. Yeah. So we get to hear, you know, so you get a distorted impression of, because people I meet in my real life, 
that I talk to. But then I read the comments on some article in the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> and I'm just like, really? <laughs> People yeah. really think that? Like, uh, so I can't, maybe they're not representative. I mean, it's also a media kind of you know, in, interchange thing. I would All be, us. it'd be interesting to know how people really feel about him, like the public at law. And I would like to see the opinions weighted by um, importance, if you will, right? Because it's mm. one thing to just get a spread, but some people like they hate him, but they don't care. It's not a big deal. Right. And, and some people, they love him and it's the center of their lives, you know? And so like, I feel like, you know, if it's a big deal to you, like if it if it's something, then I would like somehow to see a poll that weighted that, so you could see, you know, on balance, what's where is the energy in society going? You know, what do yes. you know? What do people who are willing to go stand in a picket line and <laughs> that kind of stuff? You know, it's, yeah. It, uh, I'm curious to get your take on that too. Like, I mean, you're somebody who comes from a, some, from a very, you know, you have a great technical background in AI and Elon and his companies, they're, they're like these um, things and culture that are bringing these things forward to the masses. And it's, it's almost like bringing light into the amazingness of these things. Like how, how does that make you feel like, cause, it's like I, cause I'm assuming during it's during the Apollo era. Okay. I feel like okay. it's, yeah, I think it's, it's really inspirational to engineers these days that there's like this thing going on and stuff is happening and it's good stuff. The world's going to be a better place and, and engineers play a big role in, it. I mean, engineering was really central to the Apollo program and all the space stuff. And I, I, I don't know, man, I know so many people who, they were inspired to get into the profession because of all the attention that it got at the time and how fun and interesting and challenging and rewarding and meaningful all of it seemed at that point in time. And, and having the space program go away, I kind of left a hole. I mean, there, you know, certainly there are other things, but in most, in most countries, I don't, you know, in Germany, um, you know, engineers are like accountants or, you know, in, and famously in the, uh, East, East Bloc countries, like a, a, being an engineer is kind of a low grade profession. It doesn't get as much respect as a, as a lot of other things and it isn't compensated as well. In the West, we treat engineers a lot better, but it's not clear to me that like I, people go into the profession not in, partly because it's a safe job part, you know, and it's well compensated, but a, a big part of it for most people who get into the space is that they like the topic, but, but people going into engineering because it's inspiring, they're going to change the world. Like it's a powerful thing. They're a force for good. Like that kind of, it felt like that kind of went away for the last couple of decades. And, I, and, you know, once again, people have different feelings about Elon, but I feel like Tesla and SpaceX, they, they made it cool to be an engineer again. And I'm super thankful for that. I think engineering is really important and I don't, it doesn't get the appreciation it needs. And in engineers, you know, there's a personality type of people who really get into it and they're not good at selling themselves. Um, they're very, um, I don't know, you know, they're classically introverted and they're dorky and they hang around with their friends and they're not politically active usually. I mean, they, you know, yeah. I don't know. I feel like it's been good for engineering to have it out there. It's been like my life would have been really different if Tesla, because man, I would have been on a train to go work at one of those places if that had been an option when I, when I came out of school, 
like it wasn't easy to make, you know, being an engineer was kind of like being a construction uh, manager or something like that. It was like, yeah, you did it. And it's kind of interesting, but you know, only certain people are really into it sort of stuff. Yeah. And now, you know, it's not like that anymore. It's changing the world again. It's good. I, I mean, I can tell you the, the profound experience that I had recently that, that I think really etched that sort of mindset in, in me is the Giga, the Giga Texas opening, which I, you were there as well. I think that's where I first met you. Um, the thing that stuck out to me the most was, and I wasn't even expecting this, but it did. In the parking lot, you have this great variety of cars. You have gas car, sedan, huge pickup truck with Longhorns on it, a bunch of Teslas, but like a, just a, a bunch of variety of cars in the parking lot. Then you go in and you see a bunch, like a very diverse group of people, you know, from all backgrounds. And I was talking to some of them, kind of like, hey, how you doing? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. But it was a very diverse group of people. All of them, you know, not all of them, but most of them with a drink in hand, walking around around marveling at engineering that was at a company that was built by an immigrant in the United States. And I'm like, this is the American dream at force, but super focused on engineering and technology and the future. And at that point, I'm like, holy shit, this is this is humongous. Like this is way bigger than just product. This is cultural. You know, this is a culture thing that's really starting to develop and it's diverse and very broad in its reach, but it's focused around engineering. It's focused about the super nerdy stuff that, you know, when I was growing up, if I, I actually went to school initially as an aerospace engineer, uh, which, and I just changed to math because idiotically, I thought that was going to be easier, but it ended up being even harder. I'm like, I'm not going to be the dumbass that's going to switch back and forth between two fields. I'm just going to stick with one kind of thing, you know, and finish my career. But, um, it wasn't really looked at as, at least when I was going to school, it wasn't like this really cool thing. But now with what Tesla and Elon are doing, I feel like, like you said, that that fire, that passion that's coming back into engineering and what it means to build things. And the fact that we get to have it here is like so cool. It's so cool and not well understood to this day by the masses. I think that part of it's still missing that the cultural change that these companies are are making, I think are pretty pretty vast and not well understood. Yeah. How much of it do you think is, uh, so uh, SpaceX and Tesla are incredibly disruptive to the industries that they're in. And they've been disruptive in, in a pretty eye-opening way. You know, landing rockets on a ship in the ocean, <laughs> it's very yeah. eye-opening, right? It's a, it, uh, or building, you know, building these, uh, um, you know, 1950s era, you know, space opera rockets out in, <laughs> you know, out in the, in the open. Um, and, you know, Tesla, the cars are sexy and, uh, and people really, you know, incumbents really love to hate on, on, on the company. So like they're disruptive, like they get attention because they're disruptive and they get a lot of hate because they're disruptive too. But do you, do you think that, that it's that disruptiveness is what drives all of the kind of frenetic attention that the companies get or because on the other hand, you see people argue that Elon's like PT Barnum, like he's really good at getting attention for his companies and mm -hmm. that a lot of the stuff that they do is basically an engineered effort to just attract attention. Yeah, that's a great question. I Oh, I, I, I and, and I would love to open this to the panel as well. So if Hans and Ishan, you guys have thoughts about this, I would love to hear yours. Like th the way I think about it is th there is 
it's like the perfect storm of really cool things happening all at once. And there, so Elon is somebody who comes across as a real person who happens to be very smart. He's very charming. He knows how to joke around. He's willing to go on three hour and a half long podcasts and talk about whatever. So like you have an individual that's leading a company that's, uh, that's making himself, uh, very vulnerable to the people, especially at a CEO of a multi hundred billion dollar company. I don't, that is completely unheard of. Usually these guys are super closed off and just put in a box and like their job is to just not say anything ever go into quarterly calls talk about how great the company's doing and just disappear for three months right so that is like what the usual ceo is so you have that then the products kind of what you talked about i think that disruption of having the 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 super cool car the super cool rocket uh, people can actually see and feel the things that are being made so i think that that in itself is very transformational for the experience i think the the this fucking adult chatting bot in the comments is driving me nuts go away it's because it heard us talking about the the bot. I guess it's coming in. Um, I think I think that um, the products itself being sexy and the products themselves being a something you can feel are transformational. I think if he ever buys Twitter, I think that's going to open a gigantic number of people in the population that have never physically touched a. Uh, one of his products before or experienced one of his products before. Now they're going to get insight into what it means to experience an Elon product, something that's going to be best in class. It's going to change all the time for the better. And you get to benefit from that change. Most people have no idea what that actually feels like. They've heard it. They've seen it. So then that gate opens as well. And then you have the mission. So I think the mission in itself is so inspirational and it's so inclusive you know it's like hey let's move let's move the entire world to the future let's all go together and ensure that we're not killing our planet make sure that we can survive as a species long term let's make sure we have an insurance policy down the road with mars that's cool on let's work on all these great things that are going to that's going to make humanity uh like better in the long term for for all of us not just a specific few for all of us and yeah and, and there's probably many more but like those are the three things that really stick out to me it's it's so unique. It's so unique and weird. Like, and then I've been thinking about this too. Like, like is it really that weird that we have that singular company and and mission and and thing that's driving so much inspiration, or is it weird that we don't have more of those in the world? Like, which one's weirder, that one or or the other one? Like, is it really that unique, or have we just accepted this being super exceptional and everything else is just like blah? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. I don't know what the answer is there, but yeah, that's my answer. I don't know if anybody else wants to riff on that, but that's where I land. Yeah. It, so, I mean, part of it was you, you were agreeing with the PT Barnum thing of mm -hmm. uh, attracting a lot of it. Cause a lot of people talk yeah. about like trying to save the, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's kind of, a, it's a cliche in Silicon Valley to have a mission, you know, and to have mm -hmm. your five man startup be dedicated to saving the world. And, but, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Mary Barra, you know, she'll say it too, <laughs> if, if you ask her. Um, yeah. I lean so, more on the disruption side though, because I think that a lot of the attention, I mean, the FUD attacks create a lot of attention and both positive and negative. And if the, technology itself wasn't honestly threatening to so many existing industries and players and institutional money, then I don't think that you would have the concerted effort to really try and take it down. And then um, without that concerted effort, 
like that's what drives the actual attention in the legacy media most of the time. And so that kind of creates the perfect storm. And so I think it really is both. Um, and, you know, is to kind of address your question about, well, is it weird that we have this now or is it weird that we don't have it? And when you see the the pushback against it, you know, how many, how many people have had all of those ingredients to be able to push through that were necessary? Like if kind of like, Elon talks about the supply chain, you know, to make a car, if one of the thousands of parts is not there when you need to make the car, the car doesn't get made. Well, what if one of Elon's ingredients that he needed to be successful wasn't there? Would we have Elon? Would we have Tesla? Would we have SpaceX? What if Zip2, you know, did not work out the way it did? Who knows? But, you know, I, I look at it from a different point of view. Like, uh, I don't look at... Elon as a CEO, he's, uh, I look at him as uh, an entrepreneur and an on, a bootstrap entrepreneur, right? Somebody who uh, doesn't start with raising money, but starts with building. And if you look at any uh, founder entrepreneur who's actually building or built uh, a bootstrap startup, you'll find a lot of these similar qualities. Uh, you know, from personality-wise, uh, cultural, you know, uh, work ethic, uh, the effort that they put in, the passion that they bring, and abilities as well, right? Uh, not everybody can actually, uh, not everybody has the ability, just in terms of, you know, pure IQ and skill sets, etc., to actually do something like that. Uh, I think what is pretty rare is the fact that Elon does seem to have, like, super amazingly exceptional ability in terms of, you know, what rests between his ears. Uh, but in terms of qualities, in terms of, you know, the fact that he's ready to put himself out there, uh, I think uh, a lot of this you'll find in a lot of entrepreneurs who uh, are doing or have done these bootstrap startups. The difference, another difference being that, yes, you know, like Hans rightly said, you know, the FUD attacks, et cetera, they put a spotlight on him. The richest person in the world has put a spotlight on him. So he's basically got this megaphone now. But uh, back in his, uh, you know, early Tesla days or, uh, you know, Zip2 days, maybe, uh, uh, you know, X.com or uh, PayPal days, you know, he did not have such big uh, uh, megaphone. Was he doing? stuff that was not revolutionary. No, he was, you know. Uh, he's completely changed the way we bank, right? He's uh, completely changed the way, he, he's basically, if you think about it, right, he's one of the first people to create an online advertisement ecosystem. The entire, Google runs on it, Facebook mm -hmm. runs on it, you know. World's biggest tech companies run on a simple idea that Elon Musk first or was probably one of the first people to try out, you know, putting yellow pages onto the internet, right? It's the first form of advertisement on the internet that, that had happened. So uh, if you think of it from that point of view, right, he's all he's changed our lives multiple times over, but it's only now, you know, uh, call it money, call it all the fun attacks, but the real, like, you know, Disruption after disruption after disruption, he's, uh, 
has really put that megaphone on him. So uh, part of it I'll put down to you know him and part of it to uh, the changing environment around him. Interesting. Yeah. An interesting data point for me. Like I started, I worked in EVs and I have a lot of friends at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So I was familiar with electric vehicles and I was familiar with rockets um, before uh, Tesla and before SpaceX. Um, but, you know, I really didn't pay any attention to Tesla or SpaceX until they started looking at landing rockets like that really got my attention. And when, you know, having worked in an EV startup, I know very well that, that EV startups all fail and, uh, and seeing somebody succeeding at EV startups, like that was very eye opening to me. So for me, like I started noticing the accomplishments and then that was the thing that kind of turned me on and got my attention. But I don't know if, I mean, he is a character. And I haven't been able to get my head around whether in the popular conception, what he accomplishes is more important than, you know, the kind of personality that we hang on him. Yeah. He's not the only eccentric person that we know, right? I mean, Richard Branson is famously eccentric and I don't feel like he gets nearly as much attention. I mean, you can, eccentric entrepreneurs are not rare. I mean, even Jeff Bezos is kind of weird, right? I mean, they're all, yeah. you know, Bill Gates, <laughs> Sergey and Larry, you know, who have like yeah. vanished off the face of the earth, you know, they're- Not as much. I mean, I mean, Richard Branson gets a lot of press for all the stuff that he does. Uh, you add a zero or two to his uh, net worth and, you know, that I think will exponentially increase the coverage that he gets is what mm -hmm. I think. But I mean, uh, at some level, uh, the coverage, the megaphone, that size thing is an exponential function to the number of zeros that you have in your net worth. And, you know, it is, it's the world that we uh, live in, right? People are, it's basically what uh, gives people a dope hit in their brains. So, you know. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. For most people, anyway, yeah. Um, Hans, I, I, I wasn't sure if you're putting up your hand before, if you're moving your uh, your thing around. Okay, um, awesome. Well, we're we're approaching almost two hours, James. And we've been peppering you with questions like crazy, and we really appreciate you uh, taking them on. But maybe if I can throw uh, uh, one more towards you, if that's okay. Uh, mm -hmm. it, yeah. Uh, so we were talking a little bit beforehand. I'm just curious to get your take. Um, and I'm not sure if, if you cover this with John today, if you did, please let us know so we don't have to cover it. But uh, 1069, there's been a lot of discussions around that that firmware. And um, we had Chuck Cook on uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were like, we spent an hour and a half talking about left-hand turns, like left-hand unprotected turns and his experience. And that's mm -hmm. all we did for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And I was surprised we went an hour and a half because I'm like, this is a half hour topic. Nope, it's at least an hour and a half. It could have been three and a half. <laughs> yeah, more than that. <laughs> um, yeah, for, for sure. Um, what are your expectations for the release? Um, one of the things that Chuck brought up was that he believes that uh, there may be additional cameras needed to actually uh, ensure that that turn gets completed 100% of the time. Um, and there's been some footage lately of like the ADAS systems or like the ADAS testers out there and 
trying out Chuck's turn over and over again. Um, what are your expectations? Do you think gets this thing gets solved with the current setup? Do we need more hardware? Uh, and, and yeah, maybe talk a little bit about where you think we're going with. Uh, I, I don't think the hardware is a significant. I, so I know there are a lot of people who feel really passionately that um, more sensors would benefit the the vehicle in important ways. I do not share that sentiment. I so I. I tried to do a little analysis. Chuck was nice enough to share with me a bunch of his videos. And uh, because I was curious, like first principles, like how would you ask this question about it? Can the car see well enough to make a turn? So in the world, you there are places you just, you safely can't make turns. Like there's the, 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 the way that Google wants to route me out of my neighborhood, it wants to route me off of a narrow suburban street that's parked on both sides past a building that always has large trucks parked in front of it onto a street with a 45 mile an hour speed limit where the traffic is frequently going 50 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour. <laughs> and, you know, depending on the configuration of vehicles there, you, you just can't see down the street, right? Until the front of your car is well out into traffic. Now, there, of course, you know, the world's complicated. Uh, uh, there's there's this woman who lives on a street not not far from me who backs her car into a 50 mile an hour speed zone and just blind every morning. Wow. Like, I don't know how she's managed to live this long, but apparently she's lived in that house for 20 <laughs> years. I don't know if she times it, you know, if she looks down the street before she gets in the car, she just backs into traffic. And the, and people in the neighborhood, they know that she lives there. Like, this is the the ad adaptability of traffic, right? Things that seem like they shouldn't work, they do actually kind of work most of the time. And occasionally they go horribly wrong, but they mostly work most of the time. And, and people kind of rely on this. Like if you've ever had to back a really big truck out into a street, you know that, you know, one of these moving van type things, there's a certain amount of praying <laughs> associated and, yeah. and hoping that the people in, in traffic, relying on other people to not, do the wrong thing when you do that. And mostly it works out okay. I mean, that's part of the world. There are streets that are just totally blind. You just can't see until you're out in traffic. And you don't, it's a street you should avoid driving down. I mean, these are things that occur in the real world. So there's no, there isn't gonna be any hardware solution that makes it so you have perfect knowledge in all situations of what you, you don't get there. The reality is that you have a sensor suite and it covers a certain set of cases. And if you add more sensors or you change the sensor suite, you can increase the number of cases that you cover. Um, and where do you draw the line if there's never enough sensors, right? My belief is that the sensors they have on the car right now are not bad. And I went and I looked at some problematic turns that were where uh, somebody stuck a GoPro on the side of the car, right where the B pillar is, and they drove up at a bunch of difficult turns. and. And, and essentially said, here's where I'm comfortable. Here's where the car was doing something that I didn't think was comfortable. And I asked my question myself, how much, how much time, what do you need? What, what does the camera need to be able to see in order to you know, objectively make a safe turn? So you know, I, I, I looked at some videos and I decided that you need five seconds. You need to know there's nothing coming for five seconds uh, on almost any, any road with the speed limit up to like 50 miles an hour. So say to be comfortable, you wanna see seven seconds down the road. So if you can come to an intersection, not crawl into traffic, and at some point along there, you can see seven seconds up the road, that's enough. 
Like that, in my mind, that would work. I couldn't find any examples online that didn't meet that criteria. That doesn't necessarily mean people are gonna be happy with this. Um, one of the things that you get when you start using FSD, I mean, the first time I got in the car, I was like, I, I bought my first Model S, I bought it for autopilot. I drove it out, like I went down to the factory and I picked it out, I put it on the freeway and I turned it on. Like it wasn't five minutes between the time I turned it on. And I let it drive me all the way back to San Francisco in traffic. And Damn. it wasn't very good, right? This is the first version <laughs> of AP. Brave. <laughs> uh, and the first time it had to break when I was in traffic, you know, I mean, we've all, everybody's got AP has this experience. Is it going to stop? Is it going to stop? Is it going to stop? You know, you watch it <laughs> yeah. stop. And then the second, yeah. third, fourth time, you're always, you're amazed that the car stops, right? You're, we don't trust the technology and we shouldn't necessarily trust the technology. If you're, if you come up to an intersection and the car is cruising along uh, and it's going to stop at some point, ideally before it enters the traffic and you know that there's fast traffic coming, you have less tolerance for letting the car do whatever. Like you're more sensitive to what the car does yes. than you are yourself. Because if it goes a foot too far, you're imagining disaster. Certainly if it suddenly starts to accelerate, you know, we, yeah. even when you go down the street, um, you know, you can see that it sees the trash cans. You can drive down, I do. I drive down my street, you know, every time I leave the house, there's trash cans on the side of the road. And every time I'm like, is it gonna see the trash can? And it always <laughs> sees the trash can. I still don't trust it to see the trash can. So I think there's some of this psychology at work. We have a higher, we set a higher bar for the car because we want it to stop a foot or two or three feet short of where we feel we would need to intervene. And of course, people aren't good judges of having your nose stick in a traffic lot. Like that. You can look on Chuck's videos and an, an observation other people have made and which I agree with is that frequently when you see him stop in his videos, feeling like he's getting too far into traffic, he does these drone shots from above. And you can see he's still got six feet that he could move forward before his nose is in there. But there's, you know, there's that comfort that he's got. Well, so true. If, when the software's good and when we trust the software, right, then we ask the question, are the sensors adequate? Like, can they actually do it in a way that isn't going to endanger us? And my belief is that the current sensor suite is capable of doing that. Um, you could add more sensors and they won't make it, I mean, they won't necessarily degrade performance, but it's not cheap. You know, there's eight cameras on the car right now. If you add two cameras, you gotta either, you gotta slow everything else down by 25%, right? All the other cameras gotta run 25% slower. The whole system's gotta run 25% slower because I got two more cameras on there. So you ask the question, what, that's, that's the trade-off if you just put the cameras on and you don't add more computers. If I put more cameras on and I put more computers on, I make the car more expensive. And yeah. you know that it has knock-on effects and that kind of stuff. There's a sweet spot for price and capability. And when I look at the whole envelope of all the stuff that's going on, I see, you know, that 99% of everything that they've got to do is software. And maybe mm -hmm. there's 1% of stuff that, that needs hardware to change it. And I just don't want them to focus on the hardware. I, you know, I don't, I don't think it's important enough that, that, uh, that it should be driving the discussion at this point. Because to me, the software's so obviously far short of where it can be and where we want it to go. 
when it, when it gets closer, like when we can see the real limits, then let's talk about whether we need more sensors, right? Or if the sensors are the right ones or whether they should move or one, because then we'll, we'll be in a much better position to understand. But I can't find any simple argument that I can analyze on paper that tells me, yes, these are inadequate. They need to change. Got it. Got it, Isha. So, James, uh, do you think at some point there will be uh, some network effects coming into play here where uh, as the number of uh, semi-autonomous and autonomous uh, vehicles on the road increases, uh, the roads inherently become safer and uh, what currently today is a dangerous turn uh, will become safer because a vehicle coming from the other side will also see this and will tend to slow down instead of the human today who tends to speed up. Yeah, actually, I do think that adding, um, you know, safe, mature, uh, self-driving cars to the traffic mix is probably going to have non-linear effects on safety. I don't, I don't think you have to get to a point where like all the other cars are self-driving cars. It traffic is really sensitive to, you know, the low, the lowest common denominator. The there, there's a, there's a, there's this. Uh, this group that does traffic studies here in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a really popular place to do traffic studies. And there was this set of academics and they were trying to like validate this model that they had of this granular flow dynamics. And, and so one of the predictions of their model was that there's this sort of this non-reversible phase transition that traffic goes through. And they were trying to use this to inform highway design. And they did this demonstration where they said that when, when traffic gets into certain circumstances, right, one vehicle on a giant freeway can cause everything to go to cross this, to do the phase transition to stop and go. And they did this by doing it. <laughs> like they would have a tree freeway <laughs> just fine, and they would have a pro, they would have a train driver get out there and he would do the thing where he would slow down in the oh, right man. circumstances and blam, the freeway was locked. Like they did this four or five times you know, to do, to gather data for their simulator, whatever the deal is. It doesn't take very many cars to change the way that the traffic flows. And I suspect if you had five or 10%, you know, good behaving self-driving vehicles out there, essentially, you know, with a nice safe follow space and, you know, following the road rules and whatnot, that there'd be a significant number of places and times where the dynamics of the traffic flow and it would change in a, in a meaningful way and things would just get safer. Because people can be so dumb. Ten percent is the inflection point that uh, five or ten is pretty significant, I, and it doesn't change every situation, but it changes a significant enough. It changes enough that you'll start seeing it in the in the highway accident safety. statistics. Yeah and, yeah, and you expect this to be another sort of S curve in terms of uh, safety. Uh, Safety or ease, maybe? It, I think it's going to be hard to see a lot of these effects, unfortunately, because, you know, we're, you're not going to have your one-year window when you were right at 10% and you can gather a lot of data, right? <laughs> Everything's going to be changing really rapidly. And we're only going to have good data on the beginning and the end of the S-curve. Like in the middle, so many variables will be moving. It'll be hard to make an argument about, you know, what was actually happening and what, what, what were the causal relationships between all of these different things that you're observing. At the end of it, yeah, I think 
And one of the reasons I've always been interested in self-driving cars is because it, we the the traffic fatality number comes up a lot. We talk about the 40,000 people that that die, but we don't talk about the 2 million people who go to the hospital, right? I mean, it, or the trillions of dollars of property damage that occur every year. I mean, uh, cars, I, I mean, I, this is kind of, I'm simultaneously amazed that, you know, we have people on their phones <laughs> or who are sick <laughs> or tired. Surprise, everyone's alive. <laughs> they're in a bad mood. They just, they're having an argument with their so spouse, you know, and they're driving, you know, with negative margin down the road way faster than they should be going. And it's not, it's not a total bloodbath, right? It's, we go, what is it? It's four, 400,000 miles between significant accidents. And it's a, like a hundred million miles of driving per fatality. Like those are pretty amazing statistics, given what I see other people doing yeah. when I drive my car. But the flip side is we drive so many miles that it's still a huge burden on our society, the, the, the consequences of this. You know, and as a, as an engineer, I'm offended by it because it's solvable. Like it's such a solvable <laughs> problem. We should solve it. It. It's like, what is it? It's like a 9-11 like every week or something like that. It's the, like the carnage is just... It is insane. Why do we put up with it? We should fix it. It's we we've got the the you know the frog and water situation where you know we grew up with the car. Our society's evolved around it, and we have this this incredibly in automobiles. They're the number one cause of death for people under the age of what like thirty five or forty in the United States. I mean, like people in the prime of their life with so much to go forward for. They you know they end up you know quadriplegics or they end up dead. And and we 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 just put up with it because we're used to it because we we got here step by step over the last hundred years and we should just it shouldn't be okay we should fix it we can and we will like self driving cars I think are the they're the solution which is practical to this problem that you can because the other thing like you could you could you could try to force people to be more reasonable we could raise the you know, the requirements for getting a driver's license really high. I mean, you can imagine all these different ways you could go at doing this. We, we could add more crash barriers and rubber boundaries and that kind of stuff. Those things are all really expensive and complicated and they're not going to happen. But self-driving cars, they will happen. And so I see them as yeah. a solution and it's almost like a moral crusade. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that before with, with mm -hmm. Dave about how just important that is and um, what, what the unfortunate flip side of that is that it's almost like predictable nowadays, especially if the media landscape remains for the next, you know, five to 10 years as uh, FSD and self-driving cars become more and more common is that, that the opposite narrative is going to be driven where are you going to trust the car that you are not controlling right now? You know, it's, it's a very predictable sort of a, a place that we're going. Do you, um, what what can we do to change that narrative that's likely to happen? Or, or are you optimistic that as we get more of these on the road, that more and more people are going to uh, be willing to adopt this technology? Or do you think it's just going to happen regardless? Do you, do you think this is a thing that's just going to happen? It's going to be forced and the lever is going to be pulled. And before we know it, we're all going to be uh, we're not going to be dying from car accidents. How do you see that? I, I think it's it's media that's excited about it much more than it, it's it's surprising to me how many you have the conversation with somebody, just some random person that doesn't think about this stuff all the time and isn't a Tesla nut. And, uh, you know, maybe they've seen some articles of, and you you talk to them, you give them a ride, you show them the thing and people's they're not super committed to a perspective at that particular point. And they 
you know, they have the, they have a personal experience with it and they very quickly converge on a very reasonable expectation. Oh yeah, it's immature. It'll take a while to get there. It might not be perfect. You should pay attention. But over the long run, it'll be a big improvement to people's lives. I mean, people get there. Um, yeah. You know, if they if we're fed a diet of hyperbole from newspapers that are trying to get us to click on an article, then you know you you end up with a particular perception. But but people don't seem to get really committed to that. They're not really invested in that opinion that they've gotten from the headlines that they've been exposed to. And when they actually get their own experience, and if it's a reasonable system, if it satisfies their needs, they very quickly, you know, people are reasonable and they come to reasonable conclusions and society responds in reasonable ways to these things. That's my experience and that's my expectation. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think I think that's a Honestly, a perfect way to to end the conversation. James, thank you so much, man. Thank you so thank much. You Two hours of my brain being filled with an incredible amount of knowledge. And I can't wait to process it for the next five years. <laughs> Honestly, man, it's it's such a such an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you, Hans and Ishan for being part of the panel. Thank you, everybody in the comments who have uh, taken part of the discussion. James, I'll give you the sort of the last words, anything you want to share with uh, with the stream and if any any last parting thoughts from no, your thanks side? Thanks for having me. It's it's super useful to me to get questions and have to think about answers. It makes me uh, understand the thing better myself. That's awesome. That, well, I'm, I'm glad we were able to offer that. Uh, you're obviously welcome anytime, James. If you ever want to come back on, uh, you're more than welcome to. And yeah, thank you, everybody. We're going to sign off. We're going to end the broadcast. Thank you so much. Seriously, thank you for your support, everybody. Nice to meet you all. All right. And broadcast.